We're going to be in Hebrews again today, Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verses 14 and go all the way to chapter 5, verse 10. So if you want to get your Bibles out, you can go ahead and do that. But I want to begin here. On March uh, the 2nd, 1993, a man by the name of Walter McMillan, Uh, A innocent death row inmate uh, was fully exonerated from all of his charges and released from the Holman State Prison in Atmore, Alabama. All of these charges were false. And for six long years, he had to go through trial and trial and trial against a state that was against him for his color of skin. And... It was all because of a fiery, passionate uh, defense attorney by the name of Brian Stevenson. You might have seen Just Mercy. If you haven't, watch it with your family. But Brian Stevenson was one who had the necessary power, and that power enabled him to go against the power of the state on behalf of Walter McMillan. But not only that, he also had the necessary compassion to be so concerned that he'd say, I'm going to defend you. And so Walter McMillan walked out free. But this morning, I want to I I talk to you about an even greater heavenly defense attorney. A greater heavenly defense attorney, one who had the necessary power, the necessary track record, and the necessary compassion to serve as a mediator between polluted people like you and me before a holy God. He shed his blood, and his blood connected us to a holy God. And his blood continues to secure people like you and me before the throne of God for all of eternity. So I'm going to get a little excited at some point, but I want to share with you the big idea for today. Uh, This would be, maybe you could say, the thing you want to hang your hat on, the thing you want to kind of keep in your mind as we go through this text is this. This text is designed to focus the eyes of your trust and hope upon Jesus as your great high priest who secures your eternal salvation in the courtroom of heaven, the courtroom that truly matters, the courtroom where we better be before the Father in a place where the Father could look on us and smile because he sees his son's sufficient work on your behalf. That's what we want to talk about. So if you do have your Bibles, your smart devices, meet me in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to work our way through to chapter 10, verse, or uh, I'm sorry, Woo, we've been here all day, chapter 5, verse 10. <laughs> Good to see you, Brother Carl. While you're turning there, uh, I just want to lay a brief context so we know where we're at. In chapter 1, the author of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus, the eternal Son, is God. He's God, and we need to know that because in order for us to be saved, only God can save. And if Jesus truly has saved us, it's only sufficient if He is truly God. Then he moves along and he says in chapter 2, It's also important you know that Jesus, the eternal Son, became man. He came down to accomplish our salvation. You see, things were so bad, he had to come down. And then we get to uh, chapter 3, and we start hearing about Moses. And uh, the author of Hebrews tells us that Moses was good, but Jesus is way better. And then we get to chapter, uh, the last half of chapter 3, and 
on into chapter 4 to, to uh, uh, verse 13, and, and Pastor Leon preached that whole text to proclaim, in keeping with the author of Hebrews, that, that we are to persevere in that very Jesus, the God-man. All of our trust, all of our hope in Him as we journey towards the new and better promised land called the new heavens and new earth. That God, in the person and work of His Son, has prepared for us. You get there by riding on the coattails of King Jesus. But then the author of Hebrews, he's like, you know what? To make this even clearer... I need to show you something else about Jesus. I mentioned it in chapter 2. I mentioned it in chapter 3, but it excites me so much. Now i got to talk about it for three chapters, and that is that Jesus Christ is your great high priest. You need a great... Turn to your neighbor and say, you need a great high priest. You never told anybody that at church, did you? <laughs> we need a great high priest. Let's read our text in light of that thought, and then we'll, we'll dive in and see what God tells us about this extraordinary high priest. Starting in verse 14, I'll read all the way to chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Well, what attitude does he do it in? Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word, and before we consider it, we want to ask you to blow the fresh wind of your spirit uh, upon myself, upon the people whom you have brought here this morning. Uh, Father, I have nothing to say but your holy word. And I pray that you'd use this living word to do as you please, even in my own heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right. I want to point this big idea out to you by taking you through three movements in this text that together combine... Uh, to focus the eyes of our trust and our faith, uh, I'm sorry, our trust and our hope upon Jesus as our great high priest, who secures yours and my eternal salvation for all, all of eternity in the heavenly courtroom. So starting with movement number one, 
the high priesthood ministry of Jesus introduced. If you look there in verses 14 through 16, the the author uh, introduces uh, the great high priest Jesus by focusing on several aspects of his priesthood. Um, He's going to assume we know them. It's okay if you don't because we're going to explain them. But I want to zoom in on these aspects by speaking them forth in the form of questions. Questions that are so important for you to lean on and understand, it's, it's as if your life depended on it. Like these questions and the answers to them, your life depends on. Uh, it, they're so important that, that they outweigh the importance if you were to lose your social security card today and try to search for it. They're more important than searching for that. They're more important than if you were to uh, uh, lose your wedding ring and you were frantic and you didn't know what you were going to do. Come home and tell your wife or come home and tell your husband that you lost your wedding ring. They're that important, more important than that. More important than all the money in the world are, are, are these questions and the answers to them. So, You're like, tell me these questions. Well, where is Jesus right now? What is he doing there, wherever he's at? And how does his current location and what he's doing there have anything to do with me? Because he accomplished his earthly mission, right? He lived a perfect life. He lived an obedient light to the point of death on a cross. And then he rose from the dead and ascended. So the question is, where is he at? What's he doing? And how does it apply to me? So let's take a look. The answers to these questions have to do with the sufficiency of your salvation. So first of all, let's take a look at the first one. Where is Jesus right now? Look with me at verse 14. Notice the author says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, now the question is, what does pass through the heavens mean? You're familiar maybe with uh, people who like to travel. But there's these folks called world explorers, right? And world explorers, they go nuts over trying to, uh, to take a trip to plot through uncharted territory. And so there's a lot of these uh, world explorers that you can read about throughout history. I came across one by the name of Ernest Shackleton. In 1914, on December 5th, this guy, Ernest Shackleton, and 27 crew members left the shore of South Georgia. And they were heading south to Antarctica. Never been done before. And I believe this was the third attempt of two. He'd already tried twice. So there there he was with his crew, and, and they ran into what is called pack ice. Pack ice is like large pieces of ice floating through the Antarctic Sea that ships have to try to dodge around. And so this dude was very skilled. So he's, he's maneuvering the ship, and, and they're making their way. But then all of a sudden, uh, uh, they make it several weeks doing this. But all of a sudden, on January 18th, 1914, ice surrounded their ship on all sides, causing them to be stuck in the middle of the Antarctic Sea. And and one guy said this. He said, we were so stuck that we were like a frozen uh, almond in the middle of a chocolate bar. Just right there. Like, I don't know why they put, like, one uh, almond in the middle of a chocolate bar. Never understand that. But just get that in your mind, all right? Just give me the chocolate bar. But eventually, things got so bad that Shackleton's like, 
look, guys, we got to get out of this ship. So he, he starts kicking everybody out of the ship, and the, and the ice is so thick that they could step out onto the ice, right? They could even sleep on it without going through it. They could, drive, if they, they could drive cars out on it, everything. So they have their tents pitched a safe distance from the ship, but then all of a sudden, on April 9th, they hear a huge crack. The ice cracks, and the ship begins to sink, and in the middle of the Antarctic Sea, they began to float on ice. Eventually, because they were smart and they packed uh, uh, many, many uh, little boats with them, they were able to eventually get to a spot where there was more water, drop them in, and they, all 27 of them, 28 if you count Captain Shackleton, survived. They didn't they didn't uh, achieve their expedition, but they did survive. And so they go down in history as heroes, pioneers. You see, world travelers like Shackleton set out on expeditions for various reasons. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's fortune. Maybe it's just pure curiosity. But I, I just I want you to consider a more ultimate explorer. Uh, his name is Jesus, and out of his sheer love, not fortune, not fame, not curiosity, he wasn't just a little curious, what would happen if I come down here? No, out of sheer love for you and I, he took on humanity, pioneered his way through the never-charted territory of the jungle we call sin and death, and he achieved that redemption for us, because he made his way through on our behalf, because you and I can't. We were stranded in the Antarctic, can you follow me? And we needed somebody to rescue us. And so Jesus comes, he plots his way through, and he opens up the way to the new heavens and new earth. But that's not all. He also had another aspect of his expedition. Because having died, Jesus rose from the dead and he passed through the heavens. That is, Jesus pioneered his way through the never before pioneered through multi layered heavens into the innermost sanctuary where he took his rightful place in the Father's presence. And why is it so important for you to know where he resides? Because Jesus' presence there displays God the Father's stamp of approval upon the once and for all sacrificial death of his son on your behalf. You see, you must lean all the weight of your trust and hope on Jesus as your great high priest because the place in heaven where he resides means that the judge of the universe has accepted his sacrifice for your sins. Only the God-man could get there. So that is where Jesus is at. But now that begs the question, doesn't it? What's he doing there? It's vitally important to know this question and be able to understand it, not just at a head level, but a experience level. Because the author tells us in the title that he assigns to our great high priest in verse 14, what he is doing where he's residing. What's he doing before the Father? He tells us in the title, Jesus, the Son of God. You may just brisk by that. But thankfully, I got to study that all week and figure out what he's actually getting at. You see, notice he wants to, first of all, have us discover afresh the humanity of Jesus, our great high priest. How does he do that? He calls him by his human name, Jesus. And I believe he intends Jesus, the dude from Nazareth. Which, mind you, Nazareth was the hood. Like 97% of the people lived in poverty in Nazareth. Who had the other 3%? Rome, 
which go, go stop by Miss Edith's house. She'll tell you a little bit about Rome and how Rome connects with America. Uh, just number, I'm not, not social justice today, okay? I'm going to stay here. But I get a little excited because Jesus of Nazareth was a human being. But not only was he a human being, he's also divine. How do we know that? He's not just called Jesus, he's called Jesus the Son of God. And why does the author assign this title, Jesus the Son of God, to our great high priest? Well, because the author wants you and I to understand that by becoming a human being, Jesus of Nazareth actually belongs where you are, where I am, here, on earth. Why? Because he's a human being. But not only that, simultaneously, he's also divine. That means Jesus is God, and therefore, Jesus, the God-man, is able to actually represent you the way where you need to be really represented in the heavenly courtroom before the Father, the universal judge, so that when that Father sees Jesus there in your place, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant to Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, he says that to you. I'm going to trip over this court <laughs> all day long. But see, the father looks upon Jesus and he sees him in your place, in my place. I could just stop there. What's he doing there, though? Your great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, is there representing us and interceding for us. You say, what does that mean? Not with his words. Jesus isn't up there, Father, Father, please forgive them. Please forgive them. Come on, Father, do it. I, I'm, like as if he's unsure the Father's going to do it. No. Jesus, not by his words, but by his very bloody presence before the Father is continuing to implement, catch this now, he's continuing to implement, that means make effective the work he already accomplished on Calvary. It's one thing for Jesus to do it, it's another thing for him to ascend to heaven, to the true holy most inner sanctuary and continue to make it effective but maybe you know maybe you're like me and you're like well that's pretty cool that's good news i guess i can't really wrap my mind around it consider what charles wesley said in this hymn about what i just said so thinking about this great high priest before the Father, he says this, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Why? The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Appears where? In the heavenly courtroom before the Father. Before the throne, my assurance stands. Before the throne, my assurance stands. Why? My name is written on his hands. My name is written on his hands. How? I don't understand it, but from the foundation of the universe, you can go back and check your Bibles in Revelation 14. It says that Christ was slain before the foundation of the universe. Where? In the mind of God. And therefore, even before he came and had nails shoved through his hands, a crown of thorns in his head, nails in his feet, pierced through his side. Jesus, where are your names written? In the holes in his hands and feet. It doesn't stop there. Listen to what he says next. Five bleeding wounds he bears. What five bleeding wounds? Crown of thorns in his head, nails in his hands, his feet, pierced through his side, whipped on his back, 
those five bleeding wounds, the eternal Son of God, the God-man, received those on Calvary. What do they do? They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead to the Father, forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. That's what Jesus is doing for you if you are in Christ right now and for all of eternity. It's not how hard you repent of your sin. It's not how much you read your Bible. It's not if you go to church. It's not if you served in the harvest party yesterday. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who makes your salvation effective before the Father. And verse 15 tells us the attitude he's doing this in. Because if you're like me, you might think maybe Jesus is doing this rightfully so in sort of a condescending attitude. Like, yep, got to shed my blood for them. Nope. Notice verse 15. He does this with an attitude of steadfast compassion. Compassion is, feel, is, is the Savior feel, looking at you in your need and feeling so concerned, it's as if he's got abdominal cramps. That's how concerned he is for you. So as he's there interceding with the Father, he's doing it with compassion, with steadfast love. How can he do that? Because he didn't lose his humanity when he rose from the dead. Jesus is there as the God-man, fully God, fully man. He remembers what it was like to be in your shoes, to experience sickness, hunger, poverty, anxiety, depression, learning disabilities, pain, sorrow, evil, death, and even temptation, yet without sin. And because we have such a great high priest, the author urges us at the end of verse 14, hold fast our, we must hold fast our confession. That is, let us hold tightly by faith and hope to our nail-scarred Savior, our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Why? Because he passed through the heavens and he's taken his rightful place before the presence of the Father where he is pleading the continued efficacy of his five bleeding wounds before the Father on your behalf. And the Father says to him, all day and all night, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yes, my son, your wounds are enough. They, you, are my beloved, this is the Father, my beloved sons and daughters with whom I'm well pleased. The same thing God said to Jesus, the Son of God, at the beginning of his ministry was, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He says that to you. So you could place your trust and your hope in Jesus as your great high priest who secures your eternal salvation in the high courtroom of heaven because Jesus eternally presents his wounded body to the Father on your and my behalf. But that brings us to our next question. How does Jesus' activity before the Father affect us. Verse 16, the author tells us that understanding who Jesus is, the God-man, what Jesus has done on our behalf, Calvary, the cross, and what he is in heaven continuing to do, residing at the Father's right hand, where he represents and intercedes for us, having that for your theology. You know what this has done? By Jesus, who he is, what he's done on your behalf, and where he is in heaven, and what he is doing there has unlocked a treasure chest full of grace for you. That's why the Father, the King of glory, he says in this text, is a throne of grace. Because, verse 16, listen how he says it, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Wrath? No, grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
In other words, if the Father's presence was a Costco, the Son's blood is the 24-hour access card into the Costco. But not that only. Also, an unlimited access of all the food, all the drink, all the supplies you and I need. The Costco's open 24 hours. So go get your stuff. Quit complaining you ain't got bread. Because there's plenty of grace at the throne of grace. So with the author of Hebrews, I want to urge you to draw near, like he says. Draw near to where? The throne of grace. Expecting to receive God's smiling face, his mercy. Because God's not counting any of your past transgressions against you. Why? Because he's staring at his son who was bruised and battered on your behalf. So now he can look at you and smile and welcome you in and said, son, daughter, what do you need? You're going through this? You're going through that? Nothing for me. I've got strengthening grace for you. Here's some. When you need more, come back in and get more. And keep coming because I never run out. My son unlocked it for you. You see, we have a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't try to wrap your mind around it. Just try to submit to it. So is it sickness you're going through? Is it anxiety? Is it an addiction? Is it depression? Is it a a learning disability? Uh, Is it bitterness? Is it regret? Is it unforgiveness? Is it a failing marriage? Is it poverty? Is it, is it, is it? I can go all day. Notice in the text, he says he has grace for you in your time of need. What's your time of need? Whatever you're going through. Whatever you need it for, because you're on a journey. And this journey, we've already seen what it looks like. Jesus plotted his way through it, and he died. And he rose, and he ascended, and now he intercedes, and he's unlocked a throne of grace at his Father's throne that's for you, custom fit. Go get it, and don't stop laying hold of it because you need it. So... Now that we've been introduced to Jesus, he's pretty cool, right? As a great high priest, uh, this might be the most profound way for me to view Jesus because I struggle with anxiety and depression. I struggle with a learning disability. I had a father who who, who beat on me with his words. And I need a bloody Savior. Because sometimes I get so confused in those moments where I'm being attacked that I don't know whether to repent. I'm all over the place. I don't know who to talk to. And for some reason, I come back to a great high priest who says, I know what it's like to be depressed. I know what it's like to be traumatized. I know what it's like, and then some. And my grace is sufficient for you. I've unlocked it. Go get it. Keep getting it. You're never going to stop needing it. I don't know what you're going through, but I want to make my word a little more personal for you. Because you live in shoes like I do. And you walk out the door like I do. And I don't know what you particularly go back to, but I do know this, you need a great high priest to do it. So we've been introduced to him. We know where he resides. We know what he's doing there. 
We know what it's affected for us. But now we got to turn to our second major movement. Chapter 5, verse 3, the high priesthood ministry of the Old Testament explained. These next two will be a little briefer because I want to end somewhere. Somewhere. I'm not sure yet. The preachers never know. Right? So in verses 1 through 3, the author supports everything we just learned about Jesus as our great high priest by taking us back to the Old Testament. And he's not going to take us deep down in the weeds. He wants to give us some high points of what a high priest is. But keep in mind, he's just introduced us to the great high priest. So in verse 1 and verse 4, he tells us that a high priest is somebody who's uh, 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 particularly a man, chosen from among men. Verse 4 says, from the line of Aaron. Aaron, if you're not familiar, is Moses' brother. And they come from the tribe of Levi. And from the tribe of Levi is who God chose to give us, uh, to give the Israelites the high priesthood, the priesthood ministry, so that Israelite worshipers could worship a holy God, and a holy God could dwell in the midst of an unholy people, like you and me. So, first of all, notice that they're chosen and appointed to that role. And then in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2, he tells us they have a dual role of, I'll call it worship leader, like Pastor Chris, Tasha, uh, uh, also, they are pastors. So first, think about them as worship leaders. How do we know that? Because he says here, they offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then, notice they're also pastors. How do we know that? He says they are people who sympathize with fellow men and women that they are interceding for in the midst of those people's weaknesses. So acknowledging that they too are sinners in desperate need of grace, they have to offer sacrifices not only for people's sins, but for their own. Because every single priest on through to Jesus was a sinner like you and me. Simply put, high priests were bridges. Think about a bridge for a moment. What does a bridge do? A bridge connects two otherwise disconnected things or people, right? Or different areas of land. Maybe a city in a rural place. Maybe two sides of the city. So consider like the Golden Gate Bridge, for instance, in San Francisco, California. Connecting... San, Fran San Franciscans with the people of Marion County, California. And then consider the Brooklyn Bridge, which for decades has connected thousands of Manhattans with thousands of Brooklynites. You see, a bridge connects two otherwise disconnected things or people, right? You see, high priests were bridges connecting sinful people to a holy God and connecting a holy God to a sinful people. But now why all this Old Testament jargon about a high priest? Well, because we were just introduced to the greatest high priest. Now he wants to double-click what is a high priest even? What is it? He does this, brothers and sisters, because he wants to tell us, by implication, Jesus is the climax of this Old Testament idea of high priest. Jesus, in the long line of priests, is the best priest there's ever been. He does what the previous priests have done, and is still doing it, only better. Why? He's the God-man. 
None of them passed through the heavens. They had to go through an earthly sanctuary, and the high priest could only go into the innermost holy place, the Holy of Holies, once a year. Jesus has passed through the ultimate sanctuary, heaven itself, where he still resides. He's the best priest. But not only is he the climax, Jesus is also superior to all of those priests. He's superior to this entire idea of the Old Testament priesthood because he does all of that belonging to a different kind of priesthood. A priesthood that lasts forever and a priesthood you can rely on forever. A priesthood you can drive your trust and your hope deep down into and it'll never fail you. A priest that didn't have to go to the sanctuary and offer his own and offer sacrifices for his own sins. A priest who went into the innermost sanctuary and offered his perfect, precious, infinite blood to the Father. You see, simply put, brothers and sisters, there's no better, no more reliable bridge for you to stand on than Jesus. Your political party you stand on, maybe it's good, maybe it's mediocre, but it can't hold you. Your favorite pastor, your favorite theologian, probably dope. You're standing on them in some way, shape, or form. They can't hold you, though. You see, your job profession you stand on can't hold you. Your family pride you stand on can't hold you. Not even your ethnicity that you might stand on can hold you. Your 401k and your Roth IRA can't hold you. Your dreams of one day having a fat retirement fund can't hold you. You see, there's only one perfect, reliable bridge that can hold you, and his name is Jesus. He holds you safely and eternally before the Father. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. And my question for you this morning, is he your high priest? What person, thing, or system are you trying to stand on to make yourself right in some way, shape, or form? I don't know what it is for you. I have mine, a bag of them. I go into pastor's office and I tell him all about them and he redirects me to my sermon. Go to the high priest. I don't know what to tell you. But you have them, saints. They can't hold you. Only Jesus can. You see, we've been introduced to this great high priest. We've even had the high priesthood ministry explained to us from the Old Testament, helping us to see Jesus as the only reliable bridge connecting us to a holy God. But now notice the third and final movement of our text. I want to land the plane here. The high priesthood ministry of Jesus promised. In these verses that remain in our text, the author of Hebrews intends to drive the roots of your faith and mine deep down into Jesus as our great high priest. You see, notice how we see that in verses 4 through 6. Notice that the author goes out of his way to introduce Jesus as our great high priest. Then he explains him deeper to us. And then he, it's like he knocks it out of the park here. He says, in case you're doubting, saints... Y'all doubt, right? Do you doubt the sufficiency of God like I do? I hope so, because you're human. And what would that leave me? <laughs> A pastor, right? And I doubt. I doubted my sermon on the way up here. He knows we doubt. He's a fellow human. Watch what he tells us here. He says, Jesus was appointed by God to be our high priest. You see, in these verses, he's saying, the priesthood which Jesus now holds on your behalf, because he is God's chosen Messiah, this was God's intention all along. You see, his intention was displayed in his ancient promise in Psalm 110, verse 4, quoted in verse 6, which says, my paraphrase, when the Messiah comes, Jesus, 
God will make him a high priest and a new and better kind at that. You see, brothers and sisters, why do you have great reason to trust and hope in Jesus as your great high priest? Because his priesthood, his very entering into that role, was promised by a God who cannot break his promises. So even when you don't feel like he's your high priest, your high priest is there interceding for you. Because the God who made the promise that his son would be your high priest is, un, is incapable of breaking his promises. If there's one thing God is incapable of, of it's failing. Okay? But that's not all. You can also drive your trust and hope deep down into Jesus as your high priest because Jesus is fully qualified to be your high priest. He met the full qualifications. You say, how did he meet the qualifications? I'm glad you asked. Look at verses 7 through 10. The author makes clear that Jesus' entire life and ministry was one of wholehearted obedience to the Father. You see, in order for Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to inherit his father's family business, his father's creation business, if I could say it that way, he had to come down, take on flesh, and experience his father's broken but beautiful creation for himself. So he did it. And notice what he says there in verse 7. What was his entire earthly life and ministry like? Loud cries and tears. Isaiah 53, you might recall it. Verse 3, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's who Jesus was. Revealed most fully, do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, Luke tells us, popped blood vessels, we think, as he cried out to his Father, as he awaited the cross, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What cup? The cup of divine wrath that Jesus would drink to the bottom on the cross. He awaited it. I don't understand it. He was God. He was man. He was experiencing all of this. And at the end, you know what he says? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And because of his devotion the author tells us, his prayers were answered throughout his life by the Father, who was able to deliver him from death only that day, in that garden. Remember the Bible began with a garden? That day in that garden, new creation could only come through suffering. His Father's answer that day was no. It was no. Why was it no? Verse 8 says, the author tells us that although Jesus was God's eternal son, catch this, he had to become a human being in order to learn what it meant to be his father's obedient son. And what did it mean to be the father's obedient son? Verse 8, it meant suffering. Why? Because God the father is sadistic and he just wants to beat on his son because it brings him pleasure? Nope. If you have that view of God, it's bad theology. Throw it in the garbage. It's because this, here's what one Bible teacher said, the world which God made and loves is a dark and wicked place and the son must suffer its sorrow and pain in order to rescue it. The son, in order to truly down deep in his bones, not just as the eternal son of God, to be God, the Son, He had to become man and feel what the Father felt, what the Father grieved over as He looked at His beautiful but fallen creation. You see, and this is exactly what the author means in verse 9 when he says Jesus was made perfect, that is, through His life of obedience even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus reached the full stature of sonship the epitome of sonship, look at Jesus. And by doing that, he met the full requirements to be our eternal and effective great high priest. 
You see, this was just as the Father promised, only you and I could have never, ever come up with this plan. That Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God who lived a life that you and I could never live, died a death that you and I should have died but couldn't. He did it. And he rose from the dead and he ascended. He passed through the heavens. And when he passed through the heavens, he took his rightful place at the Father's throne where he pleads his five bleeding wounds for you. And he's there because God promised it all along. You see, you can drive your trust and your hope deep down into Jesus. You could lean all of your weight upon this Christ for your eternal salvation because he was appointed to be your high priest by an unbreakable promise of a God who can't ever break his promise. And because this eternal son left the glorious riches of heaven and came down to be your eternal and effective great high priest. How? By meeting the full requirements of what it truly meant to be a son. What it truly means to be a daughter. You see, I, I, I could just leave you right there. But that would be unhelpful and ungracious without sharing a few hindrances that get in the way of us truly putting our faith, our hope in Jesus as our great high priest. Consider a few of these hindrances. The, consider a few of the symptoms to these hindrance, this hindrance, the hindrance of laziness. Why laziness? Because that's what the author of Hebrews is going to you flip the page, and that's what he's going to take a break on the high priest for a second, and he's going to talk to us about our laziness. Laziness of what? Laziness to understand the deeper things of Christ. You see, one hindrance of, or I'm sorry, one symptom of laziness could be spotty Sunday worship attendance. I didn't say it is a symptom. I said it could be. Like if, if, if Sunday mornings are something you only attend once in a while for any other reason than a, 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 a job that provides for your family, um, for any other reason than COVID or a health-related, whether physical or mental illness, it could be, it could contribute to it could dis be displaying laziness. Laziness towards understanding the deeper things of Christ. You say, what does Sunday worship have to do with that? Sunday worship, brothers and sisters, after we've been scattering all week in our various places and spaces, we come together as a family and we are nourished by the food of the gospel that cuts deep grooves into our minds and our hearts. And I don't, I don't quite know what it's doing for you today, but I know that a sustained life of worship, not just, there's some things that can't happen in your prayer closet that can only happen here. Because when we're here, we are the most ever displayed witness of a temple where God, God's glory comes down and His Spirit does something unusual in us. And so I just want to invite you to maybe ask the Father, Father, is my infrequent, maybe, attendance to Sunday worship a sign of my laziness? Is that why maybe I don't quite grasp the great high priest? And I can't if you told me about him. What about this next one? Low intake of God's word could also be a sign of 
a symptom of this laziness. You see, if you spend more time on podcasts, really good books, notice I said really good books because there's some really good ones, or TV shows rather than God's Word, I just invite you to ask the Father, is this a symptom of why I can't quite get through the struggles of life because I'm lazy. Like when I really need that truth, when I'm battling and I need to know my great high priest, do I not know him that way because I haven't really spent time with him? Like I don't even know he's my high priest. Do you see what I'm saying, saints? Where do you get that? You get it from his word. And his word is like, rest, it's like the wrestling match between Jacob and God. God, I won't let go of you until you bless me with this truth. But last is maybe this symptom, serving Jesus more than enjoying Jesus. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean when your life is more about doing good things for Jesus than on enjoying Jesus what Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he's done on your behalf, out of which flows your good works, out of which flows you serving at the harvest, uh, the harvest block party. Out of that. Out of what? Out of marinating in our great high priest so that we start acting like priests. You see what I'm saying? I could go on. I'm going to stop there. Walter McMillan. For six years, he was in trials. He watched his cellmate and listened as he was put to death in the electric chair. And the brothers on that floor were so tight that they were cheering for him. He didn't deserve it. You know, when punishment doesn't fit the crime, you know, this wasn't what my sermon was about, but when we're not, we're not angry that police officers are locking up our, our people. Just don't hit them in the eye when you're doing it. Just don't beat him in the, with a club in the head. Just don't put your knee on his neck. Just do the arrest. Do your cop work. Walter McMillan was an innocent death row inmate. Just get that through your head. There's tons of them. And Brian Stevenson, what gave him the courage? What gave him the passion to defend Walter McMillan? Not something deep down in him that he had in and of himself. No, Brian Stevenson knew the greater defense attorney, the greater mediator, Jesus Christ, who came down when he saw his brothers and sisters. And he laid down his life. And he didn't stay there, he rose. Victoriously, three days later, our nail-scarred Savior passed through the heavens where he currently resides just fine before the Father on your behalf. So what's saving you today? That Savior. What's saving you tomorrow? That Savior. What's saving you for all of eternity? That Savior, Jesus Christ, your great high priest. Do you know him? Do you worship him as such? I invite you. You've been introduced to him. You've even been a little explained. He's even been a little bit more explained to you. And he's even been promised to you. Now you got to grab a hold of him. And get this. Even when you let go of him, he hasn't let go of you. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, you're worthy. Jesus, you're worthy. Holy Spirit, you're worthy because of who you are. 
and we've seen who you are even through what you've done. And God, we thank you that you are a God that never stops. We thank you that we can come needy and desperate and you pour your grace out on us. So whatever it is today, whatever we're carrying, would you let it fall upon us? Would we come through our great high priest who smiles at us as we come through him to the Father who smiles at us? And would we live there? Wherever, whatever we're doing, would we be down here but living there? Because we can't go on without you. And we don't want to. So, Father, would you take these few loaves and these, these measly little fish that I've given today, and would you multiply the power of them? That they would produce fruit twice, three times, four times as much as what was planted in hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.